Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Today, I'm joined by John Ladley. John is an experienced practitioner who helps organizations define and transition to new business and data capabilities. His books are considered the primary source for organizations to enable alignment of business and data strategy, organizational change, and practical application of data technology to business problems. John focuses on adding data to the society's and organization's mentality. Our post-industrial era must address land, labor, capital, and data. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Wow, that's profound. Some smart guy must have said all that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, John, you are a, and I hope you don't mind me calling you this, an absolute legend in the data governance and data management communities. I, I thank you. <laughs> I, I wish my bank account reflected that, but I appreciate that to, to no end. Thank you very, so, very much. You know, John, you have... Um, you know, a, a long career, and maybe why don't we just start and and give sure. uh, our audience just a little bit of a highlight of how you came to be known at, at such a um, you know profound level as a as a mm. you know thought leader in the data management space, and and how did you get into this, and and kind of what? Are yeah, well, um, the short version I give, which is you know me well, Anthony, I hardly ever do a short version, <laughs> but. Um, I uh, um, was in the wrong doorway at the right time, uh, and that's absolutely true. In the late 1980s, after diving into the first, the first leg of the stool, which is being disciplined about things, right, kind of an engineering mindset, and that was software engineering, and I was involved with the case tools and the James Martin things and, 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 and all, of, all of that uh, uh, stuff and stood up uh, a, a, a software engineering program at Washington University here in St. Louis, and uh, which is, by the way, that's where I live, St. Louis, not San Francisco or New York. Anyway, um, so anyway, um, uh, so I had that, but um, I went to work for a company and became their chief information officer. Uh, but that company did something really cool that no other company was going to do for another 30 years. And that was monetize data and sell it to people. Mm -hmm. And they were collecting data and packaging it and sending it. And some of it was like top secret stuff. And some of it was commercial and it was really, really neat. And I learned organically about data quality, data movement, um, and all the problems that go with data being a product, data being an asset that the organization depends on to survive. And uh, that company um, uh, had some issues. Uh, I, we all basically, they went out of business, um, uh, not due to anything they did. Uh, um, but what we, well, back then, we, what we said was peace broke out because we had some defense contracts. Um, and uh, um, I ended up getting pulled into consulting and I ended up because I could say things in data, I ended up doing data things. Um, the next bellwether moment was a client came down the hall 
sat me down with my partner because I was in the big five and, and they're glaring at me and they said, you're in a lot of trouble. You're in a lot of trouble. Mm. I go, okay, what did I do? I just show up and work. Right. Cause I was a, you know, entry level consultant. Um, oh, I built something that they declared was a data warehouse. Oh. And I said, wow, great. I'd never heard of it. <laughs> so um, I just, solved the problem. Um, they were all upset, but they decided because it was working, it wasn't such a bad idea, but maybe I wasn't a smart guy. So they called in this guy named Bill Inman. I had never heard of him mm. anyway. So Bill came in and we met each other. And the, and uh, so that's two really good things that happened to me. Three good things that happened to me. Fourth bad thing was I turned down the job offer from Bill. Anyway, yeah. um, uh, uh, then I just went on to do data. After that, it was data warehouse. And I'm not going to go in my whole resume or anything right. like that. Uh, but what was nagging at me the whole time was why can't we get it to stick? This is something really profound. This is something that really, really works. This is something. And I said land, labor, capital, and data 30 years ago. I said it at a TDWI conference. And everyone looked at me like I had a second head popping out of my shoulder. And they were like, oh, that's crazy. It's just data. I said, no, if, if it's this important, it's got to have. And and then, then, you know, with a bunch of folks over the last 20, 30 years, like you, like uh, Len Silverstein, Peter Aiken, Tom Rakin, blah, 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 blah. You know, we're finally thinking about this. Um, and what I do now is I actually just intellectually pursue this. You have data as an asset. It's not just data as an asset like we can count. It's something that's changing society. It's something that's anthropologically affecting humankind. And, and we're, we're slackers. We're not getting it. We're not getting it, but I, you know, we're sneaking up on it like people do. All right. Has, has data actually arrived yet? Like, are we, are we still fighting that battle of awareness of, of the importance of data or is that become, has that become known and agreed and we just haven't been able to figure that out and what to do about it? I, I keep, I'm using this analogy more and more. Um, it's like being um, out of shape. You, you look in the mirror and you go, oh, man, I got to do better. You know? uh, and you know about being fit. Um, you know how good you feel when you're fit. Um, but you don't want to do the work to get there. Mm-hmm. And CEOs love the idea of monetizing their data. They love the idea of AI or machine learning. They love all the benefits. But folks, it's diet and exercise to get there. There's no pills. There's no tools. There's no magic. It's change. You got to, you know, just like uh, I had a really good friend that was overweight and he had that surgery and then he got really skinny and then he just kept eating and now it looks like he never had the surgery. So, you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff. Um, it's like any other endeavor where you go, boy, that's a great idea, but I don't have the time or the effort to get into it. And that's human nature. We're all like that. So we've, we've accomplished the first step. We have awareness, we have understanding. Um, what we don't have is comprehension that there's some hard work to be done. All right. Now I'll use the phrase Tom Redman uses. There's points of lights everywhere. Lots of people have done data things where they build a great model and they've done cool thing for their business, right? They've done a data quality program and fixed some data and saved some money. They put in a data warehouse or a data lake or a master data management or any, you know, any one of the alphabets 
<laughs> any one of the acronyms we work with, right? right. right. Um, they, they, they've done it, but but these are all point solutions. Right. But we st- and and so we know the value. We know it works. But everyone's going, wow, you know, where's that big, where's that big lift? All the boats are not rising in the tide evenly. Across across enterprises, and why is that? Why do we still? I mean, I had a conversation with a client this morning that said, "Well, our data is really bad. We got to do something about it." And and yeah, we're going to do this data governance program. And I okay, great. But what about your data strategy? Well, no, we'll get to data strategy later. We're going to do governance now. <laughs> no, no. So you didn't listen. You didn't. You didn't pay attention. Okay. Um, that's where that's where we are with points of light, but then to make it that deep enterprise thing, it's we're not there yet. And and there's precedent. Um, two good examples in the late fifties, early sixties, organizations decided they need to have a new area. It was very controversial because it was new overhead. Uh, it was extra people. It seemed to be a burden at the time to the operational areas and the middle management and they didn't like it at all Mm -hmm. um and they fought it tooth and nail human resources Mm -hmm. think about it in the late until the 60s companies did not have hr you your boss hired you your boss fired you (laughs) okay and when they did it, I said, no, no, hey, look, I've been I, doing my own people for years. I don't need any central control over that. I don't need anything like that. And then the next time it happened was with the CIO. Because yeah. I was in IT when this, when I was reading the front page of Computer World magazine. Um, is that even around anymore? And, <laughs> uh, and uh, I mean, we'd all wait for it. Ooh, you know, when it was dropped off uh, in the department mailbox. Um and it was CIO, do organizations need a chief information officer? Right. You know, and, and our arc, the little company I was with said, no, we have a director of data processing. He does just fine. We don't need a CIO. Yeah. Um, and uh, a few years later, uh, our cost of production got so high that uh, we had to quit making our product and it was outsourced overseas and we let go of 25,000 people mm-hmm. in that company. And a lot of it was because the IT systems could not keep up. Yeah. So did we need a CIO? Yeah, probably. I don't, you know. So uh, there's bottom line with my long, windy explanation of how I got here. Um, and this is why I wrote my books. Uh, just kind of a blind rage. Um, <laughs> we're, we're on the cusp. We are on the cusp of doing this stuff right. But we just haven't acknowledged that there are some changes. You can do low profile things. You can do non-invasive things. You can make progress, but society as a whole for all the boats to lift in the tide, which means across all enterprises and all sectors, government, state, private, NGO, for-profit, not-for-profit, for us to really start use data and get connected without sacrificing our personal rights and privacy. Right. Mm-hmm. We gotta, we've got to make some structural changes. So, I, I mean, my, my career has been working my way towards that realization and then trying to do something about it. That's right. it. Right. So you, you've touched on a couple of things and, and, you know, that, that recognition in organizations that there's a problem 
is is getting there. I think we can agree. Um, yes. But there's always this uh, reliance, this natural tendency, and we see it in a bunch of different contexts, but this tendency to to want to find that tool or in the data context, a lot of times we find these buzzwords. Like a while back, it used to be big data this and big data that. Now you hear a little bit less about big data, but uh, like we talked about in our prep, the, the notion of like data literacy or being data driven, we hear about this constantly, but it becomes so ubiquitous that it doesn't mean anything and yeah. people don't even understand what they're talking about. So what, what have you identified? Like, how do we get past this buzzword mentality and actually get something that that will make a difference in the end well i mean you know, we're, we're like we're like we're, we're like enthusiastic teenagers um uh um uh i have a picture of um mickey rooney and judy garland on one of my presentations you may have seen it yeah. and and they're doing one of these uh um uh they did four movies back in the late 40s 50s and just as a sidebar when i was a kid i was in a lot for various reasons so i watched a lot of old tv all right so so they had a series of these movies where they would say let's do a show woohoo and it's all rosy and ideal and da, 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 da. and somehow you know two broke kids from the middle of nowhere you know 4 days later uh they have a broadway producer bringing the entire new york production to you know left elbow kansas and and they do a big show and you know it's you know it's unrealistic we're we're at that let's do a show hmm. thing that's what organizations go here the buzzword you get a vague sense of what's really really cool we can do it and then um then you go then they start to see that there's some work to be done and there's actually some discomfort there to get to the show because you don't ever put on a broadway show in four days it's in production and development for years Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um and it changes a lot and you learn a lot and you fix a lot and sometimes you throw out what you've already done and start all over again right and 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 we don't we don't want that we don't like that we're in this instant gratification quarterly reporting mentality from corporations and this you know, you, uh, Anthony, you've been in the projects where you start the project. There's lots of great hoo-ha. Yay, let's go. About a month or two in, you're right on schedule now, right? Oh, yeah. You're right on schedule. But then the boss says, hey, you know, you know, you guys are spending a lot of money. Um, can I? Can you give me something here? And then you hear what I call now call the dreaded phrase, low-hanging fruit. Oh, yes. All right. I hear low-hanging fruit. See, I'm now, I'm lucky. I've been around a long time. I'm old. I can get away with being crabby, right? <laughs> And when I hear low-hanging fruit, I go, I had a client say, I said, we have a problem. What's that? I said, by using that phrase means you've given up. Mm. You've given up. So, uh, yes, do, do, we do want this. Uh, uh, they do realize this. Um, no one's sitting still long enough to, to get the education. Um, part of that is what I call the laptop mentality. You and I are sitting in front of a laptop now. I bet you have Excel on it, right? Yep, of course. I bet you you do some databases for your business, right? Occasionally, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, receivables or whatever, or you're, 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 or you're doing your work and you you download some data and you look at it. And, you know, we got business analysts doing this all the time. And they go, what's so hard about this data stuff? <laughs> right. And that's where actually where everyone's got, and yet that's our other enemy is the laptop mentality or what I call the row and column mentality too. Mm-hmm. That's also a big, 
a big obstacle. But again, you can be successful with that. That's great. But it's all these little dots and we're not connecting the dots. It's when you want to raise all the boats in the tide across your enterprise, that ain't going to work. Not going to work. Yeah. I think a part of it comes back to that people like defined beginnings and ends and they find that a the notion of doing data governance or just data in general with the the nature of it being like HR where it's it's not going to come to an end like it's going to continue that yeah. aversion to that kind of commitment is a very common trait in organizations is that they feel like because so many of previous efforts have ended badly why am i going to chase this thing that i know i need but is it, it feels too hard or 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 something it, it it well uh ceos will say you know um i know we got to do something about this data i've got to quit kicking the can down the road um and then i say are you know what is this you want to be data driven all right you, you mentioned literacy and data driven here's the way i i talk about those terms now to be data driven you must be data literate to me i put one must happen before the other a lot of people use them as synonymous and i i don't my own personal semantic is I don't do that. Right. Okay. If an organization wants to truly be data driven, which means, you know, all boats have risen in the tide. You're managing your data assets uh, consistently across all aspects. You've got uh, governance in place. You've got data management. You've got a data strategy that reflects your business strategy. All those things I talk about all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh and that's data driven. Well, and you know, you might be reacting to a model or some machine learning or an AI algorithm, right? Something like that. Um, uh, um, then before that you're literate, you understand the ramifications of what that means. It means you're going to take care of data quality. It's going to be important. It means you're going to train uh, your leadership in understanding the vagaries of data. All right. There's some philosophies. There's some abstractions that I mean, uh, years ago, we were apologetic that we did a data model and it was an abstraction. I mean, it's a great tool. Um, Our mistake was was backing off and saying, well, you know, yes, abstraction. Gee, we're really sorry. Data is an abstraction. Right. Isn't it? But then again, so's interest. Do you pay interest on your house loan? Right. Yeah. You pay interest on your car loan. You know, there was a time in history in the 17th century where when someone said, yeah, well, I'll help you get that boat across the sea. I'll finance the boat. I'll take the risk of the boat there. You know, go ahead there, Commander Drake. We're going to, you know, have a great time and bring back some good stuff. And I'll, you know, but when you come back, you pay me back plus a couple of extra bucks. Mm-hmm. And that's called interest. And everyone said, interest? You mean I pay you more than you gave me? Oh, my head, boom, my head exploded. But that was an abstraction. By gosh, we educated society on that. Who who doesn't understand it now, right? Mm-hmm. It, this it, we're we're in one of those. Again, I keep going back to this is an anthropological issue. When, when we talk about stuff at this high level, non-execution or what I call a society or an anthropological level, there's some big mind shifts that we need to make to be truly, truly broad spectrum data driven, data literate. It, it, it's a long time. It's a road. There's no switch. There's no magic bullet to it. Um, but you know, when the CEO says, I want to be data driven, when I talk to a CEO, you say, okay, let's sit down and let's talk about what that you give me your vision. Don't use those words, but what does it look like to you? And what I usually find out is they just want to be better with their data. 
They want to, they want their data strategy to support their business strategy, but they don't even have a data strategy. Right. And that's normally what we, that's normally what it ends up being. And they, and they're happy. They're, they think they're, they are more data driven than they were, but they're not some academically perfect state of data driven either. Hmm. You know, that's a, did I answer that or are we just having too good a time talking? <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, I want to think about, so we're, we're recording this in the kind of throes of the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, yeah. And and a lot of folks are, are working remote. And even as we move back towards the offices, there's going to be you know a significant amount of remote work happening for some time to come, it seems. Uh, yeah. what, what do you think? the implications of that are in this data space and, and the, the importance of, of data literacy um, or, or being data driven to organizations, is it getting more so or less, or are they becoming more aware? What do you think, what, what monkey wrenches is this pandemic throwing in that sphere of things? Well, there, there's two, there's two big monkey wrenches. One, um, Tom Redman and I, and a few other folks chipped in, wrote an article. It's on the dataversity website, um, about how data management has failed and the age of COVID has proven this. Mm -hmm. Okay. We haven't, we've talked about it. It's a great concept. We have all these points of lights, but again, none of all the boats haven't risen in the tide and we have failed. And, and the, the key example is the fact that someone can't a, at the local level, they can't count the number of damn respirators in the hospital. They truly don't know the number of beds people are in i've got several healthcare clients and they they they're guessing sometimes mm -hmm. or at the national international level is what's really making people sick where's the data how many are sick you know and then it was like well kansas reports it this way and missouri reports it this way and new york reports it that way and and then everyone goes to john hopkins and they're just taking all the data and they're just taking however anyone reports it but there's no consistent we this is total evidence that we failed as a society at understanding data and data management. So that's the first part. That's that whole, that's one thing that COVID has really pointed out. This data stuff, folks, is anthropologically, societally important. It's not the first time this is going to happen. There'll be other things that we need to trace ethically and maintain privacy. And we got to figure that out. But this is only the first of many, many examples, the more, Data penetrates our everyday life. The second thing is you, where you started, which was this remote thing. We don't go into the office. We don't have face-to-face. -face. Well, now we're depending on that data even more. So the scenario I like to use is I have a question, and I know my buddy Anthony's down the hall, and he's been my go-to guy for the reports, right? Mm -hmm. So I go down the hall, and I say, Hey, let's let's look at some data together, and we we do something collaboratively. Um, uh, what's different now in you know doing that on Zoom means uh, you might share. I'm going to be watching every keystroke you're making, and I'm going to be going. Well, wait a second, where are you getting that data from, right. Anthony? You're my go-to data guy. Why are you pulling data from that that old database? And you go, well, that's the one that always gets me the most data. And I go. Oh my gosh, the last 10 years we've been working together, we've been just pumping out really wrong stuff because no one <laughs> likes that database, right? Right. These are not uncommon examples. Okay. So I, I do think we're, we're going to see more discipline. People react differently. Uh, I mean, I'm in front of a camera now. Um, you're in front of a camera now. Uh, uh, we tend to be more focused. Uh, 
uh, yeah, we'll tell stories at the beginning of the meeting, the end of the meeting, but we get, I, I sense we get more done mm-hmm. online. So I do think the, the, uh, uh, I think the other thing then is the realization that rather than I go down the hall and I say, I need a report and you give me that report and we have that face-to-face contact and I believe what you gave me. Mm-hmm. I do think that now that we're remote and, 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 you know, something shows up in my mail and I haven't had that personal interaction and contact, I'm going to question just instinctively, did you send me the right number or not? Yeah. So, so I think that slight shift in, in, in personal contact might have a bit more discipline to it. Then again, you know, I, I pick up the phone. I say, Anthony, I need help. I need a report of this and that. I need all the left-handed board stretchers that we sold in Arkansas last year. Can you get me a number? And, and then you call me back and give me the number. That's really not that much different than Zoom or WebEx or anything anyway. So I don't know. I, I mean, um, uh, uh, definitely changes in work patterns and stuff and more reliance on data. Maybe someone will realize if you rely on it even more, you better look over, look over someone's shoulder and make sure they're doing it right. Yeah. I mean, you bring up an interesting point that I think a lot of folks uh, may not inherently think about it. And that is in some ways, the remote nature makes certain things more transparent. Like you said, like if I'm watching a screen share very carefully versus sitting across from somebody at their desk and not quite seeing what's on their screen or or not quite being able to see the details behind it. If I'm seeing that screen share, it gives me an opportunity to do exactly what you were saying in, in questioning the method. Uh, a little bit more clearly than I might be able to in a, in a workplace setting. And I think a lot of times we focus on these negatives of the remote work, but this could really be perceived in, in many ways as a positive. If you can get your data working for you in a more consistent manner, all of those interactions become that much easier as well. Well, you know, um, uh, oh, I don't know, back in the, the early twos, I was studying collaboration and workflow really closely because a partner and I were working on kind of a, um, a mashup of knowledge management and BI and workflow. Mm -hmm. And uh, we called it collaborative business intelligence. Now that we actually tried to trademark it and we didn't get it. It's since been trademarked. So that just shows we had a bad lawyer anyway. Um, but, uh, um, we, we, we thought, you know, collaborating with data was really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were more powerful ways to do that. Uh, and then when you look at workflow, you know, workflow is I do something and then that document is digitally sent to someone else. And then you get like an email or something, right? You click on the link and you work on a document. Right. Um, so when we're on Zoom or something, that's essentially what we're doing. We are being forced to, to collaborate. And, and I use the word collaborate with great deliberation. Collaboration is a learned skill. Human beings are not born knowing how to collaborate. We, we know how to cooperate. I'm in the first grade. You were told, don't right. grab Billy's scissors. They're his scissors, right? <laughs> you share the scissors with Billy, right? Yeah. You were taught that's cooperation. Collaboration is actually a specific way to work with a specific protocol. I have a couple of books on the subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked at it. Um, and, and what I've learned, the biggest thing I've learned is we don't know how to do it, but this environment we're in is actually forcing us into collaborative behavior. So yeah, we've got some different, uh, ways of doing stuff. I, I, you know, uh, may you live in interesting times, right? The proverb says. Yes. 
Yes. So one of the things that you've talked about a lot at conferences um, over the past couple of years, especially, uh, is this notion of data debt. And I think that there's a, there's an equation here that data debt will, if we can solve for that, some of the things that we've been talking about in this conversation will hopefully get easier, um, but it will also enable new new capabilities for our business. Can you talk about what data debt is for those that aren't aware, and and what should we be doing about it? Yeah, I so I don't know six seven years ago, I had a client, and they were a, an agile software development shop and they mentioned technology debt was getting too high even though they were trying really hard to be a good agile shop yeah and if if the person if an individual listening to this doesn't know what agile is it's it's a way of it's a very disciplined rigorous way of developing software quicker it is not a quicker cheaper way of doing software. It's actually more disciplined than traditional waterfall things if you really study it. Anyway, so, but you have this thing called tech debt, which means, well, you know, we really want to put this feature in, uh, but we've got to deliver these other features. So we, we, we put it in and then we tell our, our customers it's going to be in the next release. Now, Lord knows we've all heard this right? It's in the next release. We've heard it by any data tool. Well, that's the next release, right? So, so, but there's debt and they, and they, and they, they account for that. They say, now we're going to spend a little bit extra to fit that into the next release, but it would have been cheaper to put it into the current release, but we ran out of time, right? And the difference between that, the cheaper now and the more later is debt. You've borrowed against the future. Well, we're back to talking about interest again, aren't we? Here we go. All right. So, so we're, so that's that. Now we pay that to data. How many times have you said, all right, we're going to do this project. We need all the customer data. Well, I'll build a database. Well, no, wait, someone else says, well, we have the customer database over here mm-hmm. and it has all the fields in it. We just need to add two columns to the existing customer database. And someone else says, well, we don't have the time to do that because then we'll have to test all the programs that use the old customer data. We don't have time for all that. We don't can't spend the money, blah, 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 blah. So you do it, you do it quickly. Now you have an extra customer database. And most organizations have done this enough times that they have a lot of extra customer (laughs) database to the point where they have no idea how many customers they really have, right? So that's debt. You have incurred an obligation to the future. And, And so I started to... Uh, started to use that phrase data debt with his client. Uh, um, uh, and then I started to say, now, how can I use this? It's two, I use it for two ways. One, it's a communications vehicle. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest problems we hear from our data constituents is how do I talk to management? How do I talk to leadership? They won't listen to me. I can't get, I can't get buy-in. I don't like that. I like dislike that phrase as much as I dislike <laughs> low hanging fruit. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, and I say, Speak to them in their terms. If you want to do this quick and dirty, just calculate the data debt, put them in front of them and say, you're making an adv- you're making an informed decision to incur debt to this organization. Right. You don't have to get their buy-in. They're business people. At that point, they have to trigger their business person gene and, and make, and make an informed decision. Oh, can I borrow money? 
uh, I didn't think of it. You mean it's going to cost us $6 million to fix this? Yeah, I said, well, you said we'll do it now and fix it later, boss. Well, here's what fix it later is. And and they oh wow will it really cost six ah six give or take what I mean right mm-hmm. so I use it it's a communications thing to say to people don't incur data debt and I've implemented this I've actually implemented this as formal policy at two organizations and it has worked you would not believe how well it works the the quality of the data portfolio starts to climb immediately mm-hmm. and IT AppDev they are we this is a podcast we're allowed to be colorful aren't we yeah they bitch and moan like a bunch of old women at a card party all right and it, you gotta slow us down you know what i dare any app dev person on this planet to show me the data that a new standard and using a concept of data debt slows them down I dare them because I have watched it. I've measured it myself. Data standards, data governance, avoiding data debt does not slow you down. In the long run, it lowers your development costs. In the long run, it it um, improves your portfolio. And in the short run, it doesn't make you spend much more anyway. Because You know what? Because I used to be a CIO and I was a VEVP. I was a VP of data management, which would nowadays would be a CDO, right? So I've had these positions and ain't nobody ever done nothing on time on budget anyway. So that, <laughs> that, that is such an empty excuse to me. Um, so data debt is also a measurement. That's the second thing, right? I, that difference, I told you a numerical difference. Why not? So you do make a decision to do it quick and dirty. Maybe business is falling apart. Maybe you've got a burning platform. You've got to do something tactical. We all know you got to do that. Mm-hmm. But we measure the debt anyway. And we say, well, we did something tactical. Yay, we saved the business. Now, how do we make our business long-term sustainable? We can't keep doing you know, chewing gum and bailing wire technology solutions because right. now we're incurring more debt, more debt, more debt. How do we reduce our debt? And, and using it as a metric, actually, and this is pretty sophisticated, and uh, I do this pro forma for clients because they don't want to make it a formal process yet. And I, 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 I get that. Um, but when you do it, you got, you, it's a terrific metric. As you drive the debt down, you start to see real improvements, real improvements in your data portfolio. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's, and it's a great way to communicate with leadership because you say, look, I know you don't understand this data and data models and metadata. And, all, and you know what? You don't have to, those are our tools. You know, you know. That's right. you're trying to convince a CEO what a data model is just, Let's don't do that. It's not appropriate. Okay. But we have our tools here and we're here to tell you that if we do it this way now, it's going to cost more later. You make the call. Yeah. We're just going to sit here and measure it for you. And worst case scenario, we sit there and go, nana, 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 look, we were right. Right. But, but yeah. And it, it's a, it's, it's powerful. It's very, that's one of the reasons I did my second edition of the book. I, this, I had to talk about data debt a lot, you know, yeah. Yeah, well, that that whole notion of of identifying, measuring, and then ultimately choosing trade offs deliberately, and mm-hmm. you you hit on and and one of the reasons that this data debt concept has always spoken so loudly to me personally is that one of my pet peeves is this. It, for some reason, data governance seems unusually averse to quantifying what they're doing. And I find that yeah. horribly ironic because we're the ones that should be promoting all of this 
quantification and being data driven. And yet we're like, well, we're going to save a lot of money with data governance. And a reasonable executive says, how much money? And the data governance people are like, well, we don't know, but it'll be a lot. And, and it's <laughs> like the, that kind of mentality. And, and and then you couple that with this notion of like somehow sitting separate from all of the technology that contains pretty much nothing but data and is really how we manifest data in, throughout our organization and trying to figure that we can do all of our data stuff outside of that world entirely because we don't like working with each other because we talk different languages. Like you mentioned with the app dev people and the data yeah. people not getting along. And it's like, guys, let's learn about some of the things you talked about with collaboration. We we, we need to do this. Neither of us can be successful without the other. It, it's Look, all, you know, the paychecks all say the same thing in the upper left-hand corner, don't they? Right. Yeah, you know, and and uh, unless you're outsourced, and then that's a whole other argument. Mm. Uh, but, um, you know, to, to, to the point you're making about data governance, not measuring, you know, there is a, I've, you know, I've been harping on business and the tide rising in the boats and, and picking on CEOs and leadership. Well, you know, give me a, two minutes here. And I'm going to pick on our peers. Yeah. Folks, you need to learn to talk to business people. All right. You need to, and, you know, uh, again, this article Tom and I wrote a few weeks ago, go down the hall and meet a stranger and shake their hand. Data people tend to be very introverted <laughs> and I want to do this. Um, uh, but I, I'll be really honest. All right. If you're a data person and you don't think it's part of your job, to extend a hand and wait out there and maybe not be a provocateur like Tom says, but at least get more engaged with people that you don't know, you know, and, you know, uh, not wait for your boss to set up the meeting, but just be friendly and, and out there, then you don't believe in your cause. You don't really believe data should be more disciplined or managed in an organization because you don't have the stones to go down the hall and <laughs> preach your message. You can't preach your message. You're not a believer. Yeah. You're, you, you're, you are in favor. You like it. You're deeply interested in it, but you're not an evangelist. So, you know, which is fine. Hey, look, if you want to spend your career being a data steward, do it, be the best you can. If you want to be a data modeler, be the best data model you can be it, but don't come and complain about leadership if you're not making a proactive effort. All right. If you say, well, they're not listening to us. Know what? If I'm a CEO and I've done this when I, my first, when I became a VP of information management at a healthcare organization, I entered into the middle of them had bought a, we call it a glossary. Now we used to call it a repository. Remember? <laughs> and it, what was one of the big ones? Platinum or something like that. Was that what it was called? You're, maybe you're not old enough, son. I don't know. I'll, I'll claim to be too young. <laughs> okay. It was it was one of the big dinosaur, you know, a data dictionary products. And they were in the middle of it and, and they were drawing models and trying to grab what we would call metadata now and define. And they're having meetings and beating middle management over the head like, what's a customer? What's a customer? What's a customer? And, and all this, and I went in there, and you know, and I said, "Yay, John's here. We know John. He was from our area. He's back here. John's here. Yay, John's here." And I killed that sucker. <laughs> Second week, <laughs> I killed it. And they went, "What?" I said, "Because 
I, you're not doing anything for this company. You're just flushing money down the toilet. Yeah. We've got bigger problems right now. We, we have this thing called managed care coming out of nowhere. That's going to destroy the industry if we don't figure out how to deal with it and things like that. And, 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 you know, I got 20 people in a department and eight of them are running around building a tool that nobody's going to use. Sorry, bad business. Bad, but doesn't care whether it's a wonderful tool. Bad business. Oh, you, you. It, it reminds me so much of when when I was a chief data officer. You know, I had come out of consulting. I'd spent you know several years trying to sell data governance consulting projects and things like that. Become a chief data officer, and I was quoted, and and I stand by this. The last thing on my mind when I became a chief data officer was wanting to buy data governance. Like there's. There were so many other things that were more impactful for the business than creating yeah. a big comprehensive program. I needed to be tactical. I needed to be strategic, but I couldn't do a big program with nebulous goals and, and no accountability. That that wasn't the kind of thing that would resonate in the circles that I had to, to operate in. And so you had to find ways to pepper in good practice for sure, but you, you couldn't brand that effort with no teeth the the way no. i think many organizations try to do well yeah i mean they, they, you know you want to change people's behavior with data which means they need to be more data literate at the end of the day remember and this is what page one of my book or something yeah. data governance goes away all right it, it's it's part of the backdrop like hr it's part of the backdrop of an organization it's, it's like wearing right. your badge to work it's just something you do it's not special it's not a separate funded program you uh it should be built into overhead it should never increase overhead there should never be a data governance department there should be a data governance capability and function now hr is a department but but hr has uh some developments and some operational things nowadays um uh, uh, and sometimes you have auditors like in finance so you might have data auditors so there might be some separate overhead, but just getting people to learn to behave better. That's why the non-invasive approach that Signer talks about is psychologically cool for a lot of companies because you just teach a few people to do better than what, you know, you're doing something, you know, it's kind of like you're hitting a golf ball this way and I'm going to adjust your grip and I'm going to adjust your swing and I'm going to have you hit it 20 yards farther down and everyone's going to go, whoa, dude, your handicap just went down five, five strokes. Mm -hmm. Can I get some of that? I mean, that's how that works. And, and that's that's to your point. That's what you were saying. You've got to organically just change some behaviors. Yeah. So and, and for anybody who hasn't read John's you know book on, on data governance, one of the best books in this space, he's recently come out with a, a second edition. And, and the secret that if you haven't picked up on it from this conversation, you should know data governance isn't really about data so much as it is about organizational change and transformation and, and, yes. and changing people's behavior. And so, John, I'm really curious, what what precipitated the second edition? Like what has changed to the point where you're like, cause you even, you said early on, you like your, your original reason for writing that book was, was kind of blind rage and needing to get yeah. something said. And I can relate to that. Cause I, I wrote my book out of the same mental state, but yeah. you, you, you went through and, and did a pretty comprehensive overhaul of this book. Why, yeah. Why, yeah. why now? Why, why did that? Why were you compelled to do that? Cause having done a book, it's not a fun thing. So you got to really want to make that adjustment to get it out again. Uh, especially it was 85% of the book is different. Yeah. And basically it was a rewrite. 
And, and yeah. And so I took another six months of my life out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, maybe that's why my bank balance isn't high. Maybe it has nothing to do with my brand. Maybe it's just, I just don't work. Uh, anyway, um, no, the second, here's the thing. Uh, um, I was starting to noodle with it. Publisher said, hey, this sucker's selling really, really good. Do you want to do another book? I said, actually, what we need to do is revisit this. Mm-hmm. When I first, when that book first came out in 2012, big data was just getting ahead of steam. But honestly, to me, Big data was no was just an evolutionary set of words. Like we talked about words being overused, and we we get numb to buzzwords, right? Yeah. And I'm old. I'm experienced. I'm like, ah, well, it's another damn hula hoop. I, you know, big data, schmig data. I don't. It's you know. Um, and they said, well, but we're going to do predictive this. I said, we called it data mining in the '90s. Mm-hmm. We called it closing the loop with a sophisticated algorithm. Now it's called machine learning. It was. It's by the way algorithms are the same folks they haven't changed since the early 60s it's called operations research so you had another name way back then all right anyway um but so i was like okay so but this but we have this now wave of the what really got me was the data monetization part Mm -hmm. and companies you know doug laney came out with the infonomics book and it was uh uh popular and ceos are really starting now my my customers are calling me you know da 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 da. i said okay the world's changed. We've got to address that. Okay. We, that was not thoroughly addressed in it. Then, you know, you get some new ideas as you keep doing this work, you get some new things. You have to address what other people are, are doing in it. There was a, there was a period where there was Bob Siner's book and John's book. And it was the two ways you did it. You did a or B and it was becoming like Kimball and Inman. We all remember that little yeah. faux religious war, which couldn't be farther from the <laughs> truth. All right. You know, it's not that way or that way. I mean, some people's approach is a blend of the two. Right. So I decided, you know what, in spite of me saying in the book, once a chapter that you need to configure this approach for your plan, I decided to say it every other paragraph and just beat people over the head (laughs) with it. That, 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 that what's in here is a, is are some essentials, but you, it's up to you to tweak it to your, culture. The last thing I did, and I'll be done with the book here, is I changed the mindset from a functional model to a capability-based model. Mm -hmm. Because organizations have a really hard time when you root around in business processes. All right. Business processes are dynamic. They're always changing. You have a whole discipline around it, like Lean and Six Sigma, all that kind of. And, And here we come with more functions and processes and policies. And and they're necessary, but you can't make that the starting point. The starting point is what does the organization need to do to get more from its data assets? And a what is a capability, a how is a function or a process. So I backed off and put in a whole bunch of new material on capability-based approaches because it just works better. It's more palatable. It's more digestible by leadership. And at the end of the day, leadership are the ones that are going to say, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to do today literacy training. I'm going to carry this thing on forward. Um, and also the capabilities allowed me now a path to leadership, which wasn't there before. Because, you know, if you're talking processes and functions, you're talking to the enterprise architect. Nice people do a great job. Every place needs one. Not influential. You need to get to, you need to get to the folks that will 
change things around. So, so capabilities allow you uh, uh, to do that. So yeah. that's, that's, that, that's one of the many reasons I redid it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, John, we're just about out of time. Um, do you have any other parting words of wisdom, anything you want to leave our audience with that they should be thinking about after this episode, as they move forward with data, any, any uh, last parting wisdom for you? Well, we, t- we started out talking about some very broad concepts, you know, anthropological this and the boats rising in the tide, very, very pedantic, intellectual, academic stuff. Um, and yeah, but at the end of the day is you got to do good for your organization. All right. So just remember that. Remember that there are points of light. This stuff does work. But the expectations leadership has and the way the vendors are selling this stuff is setting the expectations up here at this really high anthropological level. All right. Um, But they're only giving you the tools and the air cover at this level. You know, they're selling you to go across the Atlantic and 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 do victory over the Nazis in 1942. Right. But they only give you enough gas to get to Newfoundland. All right. It ain't going to work. Okay, they're so. you need to balance expectations. If, you know, the boss says, I want a data strategy and we're going to do data governance because I'm tired of kicking this can down the road. And then he looks at you and says, Anthony, it's your job. Dedicate half your time next year and implement this data governance project. You say, no. You just told me to win the war for the allies with one LST and an antique biplane. All right can't be done boss i have due diligence requires me to tell you no mm-hmm. can't be done so i guess my my last my last phrase here and i promise i'll quit talking <laughs> um if you want to do this stuff and you know you need help and if and by the way if someone says the, the most common data governance program now the staffing is one half fte mm-hmm. and all my research and that's just wrong I just, it's, it's almost morally wrong for, for a CEO or a VP or a CDO to do that to somebody. Okay. Well, there's no CDO doing that. Hopefully a CDO wouldn't do that, but you know, someone says, well, you here, you've got half, half your job is to do gated governance. It's just wasting time. So if you're in that situation, you need help. Okay. Um, I see a lot of incorrect use of consultants. All right. So I've been a consultant for pretty much all of my career, but I've also been inside. There is a time to use consultants and a time to not use consultants. There is a time to tighten your belt, suck it in and do it yourself. Okay. Um, And try it and learn. Okay. So you use the consultants when there is you're doing something you're only going to do once or twice in a career, like a enterprise data strategy mm-hmm. that is tied to an explicit, you know, something that the board of directors might see. You might want some outside eyes for that. Um, uh, one thing you don't hire is consultants to actually operate data governance, unless it's just to get the program up and running. Right. Obviously you don't want outsiders doing, it's just like hiring a data steward. Why would you want to do that? Anyway, <laughs> Um, 
what kind of consultants do you use? Well, this is going to sound self-serving, but um, first you use whoever you think is going to do the job and you vet them like you should vet anyone else. And a lot of companies don't vet consultants very well. Hmm. You should also understand that just because your company has used a uh, big five firm XYZ for the last 30 years, it's very doubtful they can do this kind of stuff that you and I do, Anthony, at the level you and I can do it. Because they don't have the experience and they don't have the bench. They, 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 they just do it. That said, they can certainly help you with infrastructural stuff and the big project or the MDM and all those kinds of really, really cool things. Yeah. So my, 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 my word is don't dismiss the boutique or the one-person operation. They tend to be actually more effective and you get more for your buck. Uh, from those, uh, so those kind of folks. Um, uh, that's next to last piece of advice. The last piece of advice is if you're doing data governance and you don't have a data strategy, you don't have a target. If the boss says, let's do data quality, that's great. But tell them we're only going to fix the one thing you're targeting at unless you get the boats to raise in the tide altogether. This is just going to be points of light. Mm-hmm. Um be that provocateur, reach out and start to think like a business person. Yes, we'll do this. Yes, we'll work. We'll stand up this AI model. We'll stand up a data science department. We'll do a data quality project. We'll do a glossary and uh, hopefully get some business benefit from that. But think beyond that. Think beyond that. Think beyond that. Because as if you don't think beyond that, you're going to do a great project. And then you're just going to sit there at lunch one day in the cafeteria going, why aren't they really adapting all this stuff? Well, because you just did a project for them. You didn't, you didn't evangelize or anything. Yeah. That's great advice. I can stop talking now. (laughs) Well, John, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been absolutely awesome. We didn't even get half of the stuff we wanted to get to. So we will hopefully have you back again soon. Do it again. We will have John part two. Yeah, I would I would love to do that. So thank you again. And thank you for watching or listening today. You'll find links and more information about today's topic in the show notes. Please remember to subscribe to our show on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Algman.com to learn more about Algman Data Leadership and the many ways we can help you become a data leader. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact. 